Welcome to Sheer Clarity, the show that will teach you about leadership by attraction, building self-awareness, and how to develop exceptional self-management abilities that will help you become more reflective, more open, more trusting, and more engaging with the people who matter to you most. In other words, make you a better leader. Head on over to SheerClarity.com where you can learn more, subscribe to the show, and connect on social media. And now, here's your host, Jay Kevin McHugh. Hey everyone, Kevin McHugh here with another fantastic episode of Sheer Clarity. Sheer Clarity is a podcast where we talk about leadership by attraction and how leaders who have that special something that is instantly attracting others That's something that is based on the fact that they have sheer clarity about who they are. Uh, Not too long ago, I I did see in another business book I was reading that the uh, author just made the comment straight up, who you are determines how you lead. And as you know from our sheer clarity conversations, knowing who you are is not an easy task. It's complicated. There's nuance and layers and I couldn't think of a better guest to have to talk about nuance and layers because my guest, Brian Hayward, has many of them. But the best part about all of his nuance and layers, every layer has some humor attached to it. The guy is a fantastic guy with a sense of humor. I've known him. I think we calculated, Brian, was it 04-ish or 0 5-ish when we hung out? Oh, my-ish? Oh, oh my. my. Oh, yeah, like, <laughs> like we- way too way too long i think it was earlier than that actually but oh god well regardless i'm gonna make sure brian has a chance to introduce himself i'll give you the quick down and dirty he's here on the podcast because he's been managing and governing organizations for 40 years he's the consummate c-suite guy he served on 25 or 30 different boards he's been in all sorts of capacities around the C-suite, whether it's a, a senior executive, a CEO, a fledgling junior board member, maybe a senior committee chair. But he's been doing this with passion for a long time. And then he decided, I'll take that passion and turn it into a book. And he's got a book. He'll talk about it. And we'll tell you where to find it at the end of the podcast. It's called The Great Chair. And he's really poured out an enormous career of wisdom and experience in a very entertaining way about what board governance looks like. I know sometimes we have listeners who are listening and they could be anywhere in their career trajectory. It could be millennials, could be 30-somethings. I have a lot of family members who listen and love it. And here's what I, I love about this. When I was there in my 20s and 30s and I encountered somebody in the C-suite, I always looked up to them. And I always thought about them, and they always projected a great power and presence. And it took me a long time to be comfortable with realizing they're just good people as well. So when you get there, it's it's a fascinating thing. But for the for the younger listeners, there's deference. And I think what you'll you'll learn from our time with Brian is that you don't have to be, you would be deferential no matter what from a leadership perspective, but you will also find the human quality. There are people who put their shoes on the same way everyone else does, and they wield a lot of influence, but they're also awesome people. So with that, I have to say officially welcome and good morning to my good friend, Brian Hayward. Good morning, Mr. McHugh. That was the longest intro I've done in a while. I guess I needed to talk to somebody today. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, it's it's cold everywhere, I think. So getting the Wizard of Oz uh, oil can and the jaws working properly is is always helpful. That's a good idea. Welcome to the podcast. I would ask you to begin by just telling who you are, man, like your day job and how am I finding you at this moment in time and space of life? And then we'll just we'll go all over the place to find out who you really are. Yeah. You know what? It's fascinating is at this point in my life, if when I was in my 20s, I, if somebody would say, well, what does life look like in your 60s? I probably could, would conjure up some kind of paradigm of you know, having a sailboat and playing golf and being very relaxed. My day is actually kind of a huge, almost quilt of, of different patches. And so I, I'm actually in the middle of doing fundraising as chair of a board for a company that's got proprietary technology in sleep. And what the, the vision is, is to actually contribute to wellness because sleep is something, it's a, one of the pillars of health along with exercise and diet. And it's there's nothing been done in that area for 50 years. And that's part of my day. And, and I'm, I'm in the middle, actually, of, of doing, as you mentioned, I, I wrote a book. I just got the audiobook version files yesterday. So I'm actually having to listen to, to that. I'm also involved in educating myself. So I'm going to take a course for an hour webinar. So it's just this patchwork of things. And I actually love it. Because the diversity and talking to you, of course, here's an hour of my life. And I actually find great value, even though we're distant physically and, and we don't talk all that often. You've, you've been a mentor to me in the sense that I, and I've passed it along. I, I, you know, I think I mentioned it to you last time we talked. Things like, you know, forum is work. Sometimes the value out of a conversation is simply churn. And I've said to people, the churn factor is something I learned from Kevin McHugh. <laughs> and I, I've, I've tried to take that even into boardrooms where, you know, there's such a linear mindset inside the boardroom that we're there. We're kind of a bunch of alpha people who are driving for a decision. And it's almost like jeopardy because, you know, people are, can hit the button the fastest or, or show off their smarts, win the prize and get the, you know, the respect, et cetera. But I think what gets lost a lot in the boardroom, and I think that's the case with Zoom even, is churn. Mm -hmm. Thinking about something and having a conversation, not looking at your watch and trying to understand the issues and, and the possibilities. Yeah, it's synonymous with just processing stuff. You know, our, our brains are complicated and they process at a certain level and frequency and then you layer on the filters we have and then you layer on emotional meaning which some people are not even connected with and without the passage of some time just to let it all kind of stew and churn and move around you don't necessarily get the thoughtful benefits it's just called being thoughtful about it right if you're rushing to the next decision Without the real thought, well, the quality of your decision is going to reflect that. I worry sometimes, I'm, I'm at heart, I'm an optimist, but I worry sometimes that the next generation is even more driven by that paradigm. Yeah. When I look at my daughter and she's in her mid-20s, the whole Facebook texting thing, you know, you text 
and the expectation is immediately people are going to answer. That's right. And and there's no time to do it because your fingers are flying. So so we now we have IDK yeah. instead of I don't know. It's a continuum from people like Churchill or Kennedy used to write books, very thoughtful essays. And you really struggle these days to see widespread thinking and assembly of, of thoughts mm-hmm. and taking the time and care to ponder something before you react to it. Pondering. Imagine that pondering. Let me, can you imagine, can you imagine <laughs> one of our kids going, dad, I'll get back to you. I need to ponder that for a moment. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> for a few days. Yeah. The thesaurus gets shorter and shorter oh, every day. Man. And it's on Microsoft. You just click right, click right, on thesaurus. Right, right. <laughs> I love, you know, I've gotten to this spot where when I do the interviews, I always want to have a sense of the person I'm talking to from the beginning. So would you share a little bio from the time of how you grew up and what it looked like in the home you were in and relationships and challenges and issues and struggles and, and the fun stuff too. I just walk me all the way through so I, I can get a sense of your path and just how, how the heck we got here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's pretty convoluted, Kevin. It, I think, you know, one of the one of the aspects of it is when I've been in boardrooms and situations, people have a tendency when you're at that level to assume that, that somehow or other there was it was an easy pathway and it was pretty pretty straightforward, but yeah. it would be far, far from true. You know, I was born in Montreal. My mother uh, had me when she was 17. My father was was 22 years old at the time. And now it just stuns me hmm. having children at that age. He was a philanderer, so the marriage didn't last. And so when I was about 13 years old, they split apart. But he was a pretty authoritarian individual, not violent, but just about right. Scary, you know, red scary, yeah. scary, smashing dishes every once in a while. Uh, he, but he forced me actually, and this is the in the, in the 60s when everybody was had long hair to have a brush cut. I had buck teeth. I had to wear headgear. I was late in puberty. And so I was small and a runt and got sort of bullied around. When he left, I I saw my father uh, twice afterwards. He passed uh, in 2015, but they were both very uncomfortable situations. When he left, my mother actually had cancer that year and she had to have a hysterectomy. And I had one brother. And and so when I was in my mid-teens, I actually thought I'm not going to be able to go to university because we we were, I would call it low, low middle class, Uh, not poverty, gone through my life a couple of times where I've had $10 to eat for the week, which is actually, you can do a lot with $10 (laughs) with Kraft dinner, peanut butter, and a loaf of bread. You can do it. Yep. I had, the, I was smart. And there was a guy that in, when I was in grade seven, that actually said, you know, you're really good at solving problems. It was probably one of the few times in my life where I actually had somebody compliment me and give me a level of encouragement that was uplifting. Otherwise I was, I was a pretty solitary individual. And I think that's actually influenced a lot of how I've developed professionally in that I was left alone a lot. And I had to figure stuff out for myself and how to survive. Initially, I wanted to be a doctor. 
but then I didn't. And I was a schlep. I, I did grow my hair long, but I probably may be some kind of rebellion. But after you do that for a while, it gets a little tired, a lot boring. I ended up flipping through a book of courses and programs at McGill in Montreal. And there was a piece in there that said, graduates in agricultural economics are in demand at all levels of the Canadian public and private sector. I go, so these guys are telling me I can get a job. And, and oh, okay, it. I'll give it a, a whirl. Uh, Anybody who's been to Montreal, it's probably one of the most urbanized areas. You know, green space is not no farm, a high priority. No farming here. <laughs> Make a long story short, as I went through it, I was actually fascinated. I took several courses in entomology and, and learned about insects. And I was just curious as hell. And I stumbled into one of the, the people that was teaching there wrote an, a commodities article for the Montreal Gazette on a weekly basis. And I just fell in love with the idea of trading, trading stuff. I'd been a Marxist in my, in my late teens. And then I flipped 180 degrees and became uber super capitalist. Yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to be, you know, they don't do it anymore because we're all electronic, but I wanted to be the Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Murphy movie trading places yeah. where everybody's screaming and yelling. Yeah. Now I want I just, I had, you to, had do to do that. And I did. Did you do it? And did you actually do it then? I mean, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. I, but I, I joined uh, Canada's oldest cooperative, which was a gerontocracy at the time. So I had a master's degree in ag economics. I wanted to be a trader. I joined a grain company. And my analytical and logic from being kind of science trained came to the fore yeah. because these guys were running capital projects and they go, oh, well, I think I'd be a good place over there to build a grain elevator. <laughs> and I'd say, well, why don't we run a discounted cash flow model and see if it's a good investment? <laughs> oh, this guy's got potential. <laughs> uh, my, my favorite way, Kevin, of explaining my... My career <laughs> is, is the old adage that in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. <laughs> this is awesome. And so I I actually rocketed right through. You I was running the, their international, uh, this is Canada's like second or third largest grain company. I was, was running the transportation trading division, doing it, flying to Japan at the age of 28. Really? The company was in trouble, though, not because of our area. And, and so that at... Uh, 34, I became CEO, which was, I look back and I go, Are you that kidding? was a stupid thing to do. Yep. But back to my point about doing, figuring stuff out myself, we were going to go down. There's, uh, we were, we're heading right off the cliff. My CFO is a great British guy. And he said, all this analysis, we'll just know exactly the right moment when we're actually going to tip over. And we actually took a cooperative and turn it into a publicly traded company in about 18 months. Oh, man. And people said, you can't do you that. You can't so do that. Why not? You know, my career, ultimately, there was lots of consolidations. In 2007, this company that was looking to be a footnote in history got taken over for a premium price, all cash, yeah. in, a, in a hostile takeover. I actually was looking at that time. I'd been the CEO of a public company then for 17 years, and- People go, oh, well, what's your next challenge, Brian? And yeah. I say, you're going to move to Toronto to the big smoke and, and get a bigger and better. And the lure of that stuff, Kevin, it gets old really fast. Yeah, I know. And I know. it's not what life's really all about. I and that's know. when I would have met you. I decided that I was going to try to just make my own way. 
and be involved in different situations. Didn't know if that was going to work or not. But, you know, one of the things about being taken over is I'm not a wealthy guy, but I have enough that I could actually afford to take risks right. and not worry right. about eating peanut butter and and, yes. and even though you have the fine art of how to prepare that in your repertoire. Yes. I'm curious by nature and, and, and why did I write a book? I will, you know what? I'm going to write a book. I've, I've done a lot of things probably back to the theme of being left alone and trying to figure stuff out for yourself. I love working with young entrepreneurs. I like being in situations. I mentioned that we're looking at a sleep technology company that's doing essentially taking sleep from the squiggly lines, like like a, an FBI yeah. lie detector yep. to being a digital situation. And I, I'm grateful to the people that, that have been mentors. And, and I, I'm at a point where I love helping people, entrepreneurs, young guys, young women, and give back. Several times as you were telling the story, you made reference to the amount of I guess learning experience approach that came from being alone and, and having to care for yourself and, and fend for yourself. It echoes a number of clients I've had and others who've spoken about that where sort of in the early years they were unguided. Mm-hmm. It sad, sounds sad in a way at first, you know, because yeah. you know, didn't have this sort of stable, beautiful, out of some kind of a picture book, uh, mom and dad, kind of all that stuff, right? It's just a picture. But doggone it, if there isn't a correlation between people succeeding in the way you're talking about and a childhood where you sort of had to get, had to figure it out, had to learn to eat and make something of yourself and there wasn't guidance. I think it provides something that you just wouldn't get any other way. There's a resilience. And I heard this corollary to that was people who have grown up in households where one or more of the parents were shifted around a lot. They moved the military. You military, know, yeah. Military exactly. brats. Yeah. And so these folks ended up going to a different school every three years, right? Well, yeah. fast forward, they can they can walk on the back dock and talk to anybody out there loading pallets, and they can go right up to the boardroom and have fit right in. Yeah, and I, I actually made a connection the other day with with a gentleman who's in business in Toronto, and just by happenstance, we have and military guy, and we connected, and it's like he's my brother from another mother. Yes, yes, yes. The, energetically, you guys, you have something that like underneath is identifying in the other guy. Oh, I like this guy. Why? Well, there's something about him. What is it? Yeah. Just, yeah. I don't know. He's, he's like owns everything about himself. He's, he's a totally responsible person, right? And I feel like when you arrive at that place, you have energy available for other people because you're self-sufficient. You're resilient. You take care. You, you know how to care for yourself. The other thing that, it, and when I look at people that have come from that kind of background, Kevin, that, that I think it it introduces humility in, into their kind of their very being. Because if you're by yourself, you're not showing off to anybody, are you? Yeah, yeah right, right. You are yourself. And you have a strong sense of reality because you can argue with reality. 
but you only lose a hundred percent of the time. <laughs> and, yes. So, you know, I think it grounds you. I think that's, that's because right. you have to deal with reality. If you're, if you're that, that military kid who's going into grade eight and they don't know anybody there and there's bullying and there's already uh, cliques and factions yeah. and tribes, you have to deal with that reality. Yes. You're not part of anything. You don't fit. You yep. don't. Yep. A lot of the folks uh, that, that coach don't, don't have that. I've been on, I've lost count of how many boards, but it's kind of the same feeling. I walk into a room where there's a new board and I don't know anybody in the room. Mm-hmm. Okay? And the first meeting or so is a little awkward because you're trying to sort of in your own mind process what's this, you know, the different jargon and the feel of the room is a certain way. To me, it's not unlike that military paradigm where you're going to move in cities. And When you go back as an independent person who had to sort of take care of himself and that became part of your capacities, your toolkit, do you have places where you can see how that might not have been helpful? Yeah, no, there's no question. I I try very hard to be self-aware and I think that's where being involved in your mentorship and understanding myself, I, I actually went the dark side of that, of being alone. I find that I have at times issues with self-confidence. Mm-hmm. If something doesn't go right, I can be difficult on myself. And probably in my worst moments, I'll, I'll actually lash out because I feel frustrated, defensive, self-esteem, because, you know, what's driven me more, people look at somebody like myself or others that would be in a similar situation. And they say, oh, he's, he's driven. He saw the vision. He had destiny and all of that. <laughs> when in fact, what it was, was the wolf chasing me. What, it, it was fear. It was, hey, I've only got 10 bucks to eat. What am I going to like? You know, what if this doesn't work out? Yep. Being in boardrooms where where people are lying and things are going the wrong way and the dark side kicks in and you think I'm going to be at one point it would be, I'm going to be in a never was, but then I'm a has been, then I'm a joke. He flamed out at the age of 40. Yeah. Remember that guy? Now he's drunk on the corner there, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're speaking to my heart. I can tell you, I have exactly, I mean, I'm 32 years doing what I'm doing now and probably met 3,500 CEOs. And my job was always to get them to be real and honest. And how did I start that at 35 with some amazing vision? No, I kept getting fired. I For good I reason. Getting, <laughs> I kept getting fired. I kept like the owner or the whoever my boss was, was like, you know what? It's not working out. That's the my favorite phrase about how to get fired. You know, this just isn't working. Really? And in the end, it was me. And so, yeah, I didn't have a choice. Wolf chasing is one metaphor. Mine is I am sitting on a tiny plank of wood floating in the middle of the ocean. It's the last thing I have is this piece of wood. I'm holding on to this. That's all I got. Now what? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you actually have a you have a quote somewhere in your book, and maybe we'll talk about that in a minute here. There's somebody I can't remember where it was, but there was a quote about if you're standing on the shore looking at the water, like 
You're never gonna get there. I don't. Do you remember that? No. I knew this was gonna happen. Oh. I should have marked it. Oh, I got it. I got it. You ready? Yeah. And boy, I can never pronounce <laughs> this guy's name, Rabindranath Tagore. Well, that's why I actually finessed that one. So you'd, you'd have to say it, not me. <laughs> this is great. This is great. We can talk about this in our post-call discussion. Thanks for asking the question. I couldn't answer about my own name. <laughs> yeah. It's perfect. You can't cross the sea merely by standing and staring at the water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's perfect. It's perfect. Well, and, and part of there's another quote, though, and I may not get this right, and I can't remember who said it, but I actually believe increasingly in, in being in the moment and just accepting the moment, whether, at, whether it's sunny out or shady. Or, so many yeah. people are always uncomfortable in the moment. But there's a quote in there, in there. It's like, when you get there, you realize there is no there there. That's that's right. It's the difference between doing and being. I I have a quote from some place like we they call us human beings and we end up walking around human doings. Everything is associated with doing and acting. There's no just being. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And how many executives have you and I known across the years and it's like a it's an epidemic, I think, in the world we work in, especially when I see it in YPO. And it's the it's the executives who are, in theory, on a vacation. They're not there. They're on the phone. They're they got to be in a meeting. They got to be at a deal. They got to be this. They got to be that. And their families are busy doing what families do, whether it's frolicking on the beach or doing something. And that particular father or mother it can happen either way. They're not present. They're missing the whole thing. I think it's, it's. I mean, this is a bit philosophical, but it, it really connects back into the materialistic nature of business because it really is, at the end of the day, people look at what you do and they say, well, I wonder how much money he makes at that. And, oh, he just got a plane or he got a new car and, and it's toys. And, and part of how I'm defining myself at this, at this moment is by actually just enjoying the moment itself and the enjoyment of talking to Kevin or writing a book or helping build something that may have enduring value as opposed to some goofy trinket. <laughs> yeah, flash in the pan kind of thing. Yeah. So, so let's talk about now. I mean, the book, my board experience came late. It's over now. But – it was fascinating to me, and the guy who asked me to be on the board, we were privately held, but we operated, you know, with SEC guidelines because of a, a lot of our debt financing on the market. I had to learn a lot, and I sat mm -hmm. on an audit committee because I was one of the few independents and sat on the comp committee, and mm -hmm. I got trained and got this sense of governance and the theory of it. And then we got training on the legalities of it and what it means to be a fiduciary. You know, there's a lot of technical, legal sort of heavy responsibility. But when I set all that aside, I still ended up in a room with 14 people. Yep. And I was just watching. They're just 14 people. Yeah. They're just 14 humans. And at one point we had a trip 
before the COVID thing to, I think it was Barclays, where we were, you know, doing a refi and we're sitting in this room and I've, I've never seen a, a piece of glass that long, you know, because the, the boardroom table was glass. It was <laughs> 60 feet. I said, how do you make glass 60 feet long? You take a hundred foot piece and cut it. And- <laughs> I guess you <laughs> And then all of the suits. And I felt like I was in one of those movies about Wall Street. Everybody had a pinstripe suit. Everybody had the Gordon J. Gecko. And there we were in the middle of that whole scene. And I was thinking of us as these tiny little creatures just oozing all this power. And I was struck by the incongruity of it all because in the end, we were puny. I felt we were puny. It kind of kept me humble. After 25 years, or I'm sorry, 25 boardroom scenarios, do you have anything that sort of thematically, humanistically always showing up for you? You're very thoughtful about the human dynamic side, and I'd love to hear some of your lessons from it. And if there are people who listen who are on boards, maybe there's something they can get. Or if there are people who don't know what a board looks like, this might actually tune them in to be perhaps less intimidated by what it means. Yeah, to your point, it's a collection of individuals. There's sort of a ritualistic notion that there's power in the room and the chair who's at the pointy end of the big, long 60-foot glass (laughs) table. And and Hollywood's sort of made that, you you know, think back about, you know, a Christmas movie like Elf. And there's the guy at the end of the table, and he's banging it, and he's got the power. And, and that, that was actually the tipping point why I started writing the book, because I've been in so many board meetings in so many different capacities. And I was thinking, you know, some of them are really horrible meetings, and some of them were really great meetings. And, and it actually was, was the dynamics of the individuals. And was it, was it their power? Not necessarily. And then I, I started actually thinking about the elements of what makes a great board meeting. And a lot of it was, at, at, in large measure, was due to the, the and this kind of connects right into, you know, sheer clarity and the theme of, of your whole podcast series is leadership by attraction. Well, these aren't necessarily attractive people. And some of the best ones were actually kind of quiet and their power Mm-hmm. This isn't because there's a lot of, of actual empirical information that I've embedded into the humor of the book is a sterile, boring governance book <laughs> is just going to be a big doorstop. So I, I had to think about how to how to make this thing actually accessible to people. It, it's it's the influence and the way they operated because the chair of a board, you can't by and large, they don't have the power to fire other directors and say, to your point, this isn't working out. (laughs) The chair really is not empowered as a single human being to terminate the CEO in a lot of ways. They have to convince a few other people. And underneath it all, when you start to really dig into that, that influence comes from simple thing, trust. I trust your judgment. I trust you. And the best situations, in my estimation, are where there's an amazing level of trust between the person who's engaging the board, engaging their peers, 
in a professional way in the CEO. The chair and the CEO, when you have a fantastic relationship and they trust each other, is, is amazing. And in a, a lot of jurisdictions still, we have a situation where the chair is the CEO and, and vice versa. It's not a pedantic thing per se that I, I believe that there should be a separation because da, 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 da. I just think that everybody needs feedback. And a CEO as a leader of a company needs feedback and they can't be feeding back to themselves. Correct. Uh, Correct. So it's all about trust, Kevin. And, and when I started digging into it and what the elements of trust were, it was very revealing what's actually amazing. You write a book and then it's kind of like, ta ta da it's done. But then you get people coming to you and say, I read your book. I read your book. You know what I liked is this. And I have had so many people come back and say, you know, that, that whole thing about trust. Coincidentally, YPO is, is actually on, on CEO Insights. Has, they asked me to write a part or take an excerpt out of the book. And I said, well, I could do this or that. Or how do you build a good, good agenda, whatnot? And he said, no, no, that trust thing. We would like you to do 2,000 words on that trust thing. That's right. And so that's in the YPO space now. I think it's called the uh, trust, the secret sauce of the boardroom. I'm, you and I are right in line. It's the first thing on my three-legged stool for the leadership by attraction. Trust honesty, vulnerability. And to be honest with you, it's, this isn't new stuff. The, I mean, we're using some common sense here. I think the problem is because it it is common sense, we think it might be simple. The actual cultivation of it, and I think you have it in the book somewhere. I thought there, there might have been a quote somewhere from someone, but I think it was, how do you build trust? The only way you do that is by trusting. Yeah, Ernest Hemingway. Is that who, okay. Well, yeah. see, that one you knew. Yeah, of I'm, course. But that's because right. that Hemingway is easy to say. The other one yeah. was, uh, was yeah. tough. It yeah. was tied right. your tongue up there, Kevin. I hope it's I've redeemed my, I hope I redeemed myself by getting, now we're equal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 one you knew, one you didn't. <laughs> the scoreboard. We should at least talk for a moment about it because it's so powerful and so important. And what you're, what you're confirming for me is that it exists as a central element of our overall life of business transactions, from the time you start your career to the time you end up in the boardroom. Should that be your trajectory? You will always have a reputation one way or the other. Absolutely. Trust to me is, and I, I, unfortunately, I had to learn it the hard way because you think that when you're in a boardroom that the people there are, are of a caliber, you kind of go, okay, you know, this, this is the NFL, you know. Right. I assume. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you don't think that Bill Belichick actually took air out of the ball. Yeah. He didn't need to do that. Right? right. And, but then you find out, yeah, well, he actually sort of took some air out of the ball. And, yeah. you know, the parallel to that is to have somebody sitting across the table and lying to you, looking you right in the eye, and you're going, like, I think that guy's lying. That's the kind of thing that happens. And you learn the hard way because when you do find out he was lying, it shakes you. And then you're going, well, now am I going to come into every board meeting being this kind of cynical, person thinking that everybody's lying 
But my heavy lifting on it, Kevin, was was because people talk about trust. It's like baking a cake. How do you do it? I wanted a Betty Crocker on trust. And, and that's not easy to find. And what I appreciate about what you're doing with your podcast and the opportunity is, and the people that you've, you've engaged with is that it's, it's a deliberate act of being vulnerable, of saying inside your own skull, I could actually be amusing and not, you know, Kevin says, well, tell me about your life and I'll sort of skip over a bunch of stuff and be shallow, but sharing and being vulnerable and saying things like, you know, I've, I've had problems. I've had an addiction. These are things, listening to the other person and empathizing. These are actually steps that are like preheat oven to 350 degrees. Right. Spray pan with some light oil. And say, how do you actually build trust? Step one, yeah. talk right. to person and actually initiate. Take the first step. Don't wait, but start to share who you are. Yep. Benefit of the doubt. I have clients that have what I call the big the big wound. And I only called it that because a Canadian psychologist named by the name of Jordan Peterson is one of my favorite reads and listens to. And He's an amazing guy, but one of the things he said, of all the different things that you could do that's going to leave a mark relationally and emotionally, it is betrayal, and it's the betrayal of a loved one. That's yeah. the big one. That's the big one. So whether it was your parents, one of them maybe abused you. I mean, talk about the relationship of power a parent over a child, and that parent is, you literally got betrayed by your own mother or your father, that leaves a mark. And they proceed through the rest of their lives with a huge scanning system of can I trust this person? And then they end up sometimes as a self-fulfilling prophecy because they actually don't think they can trust anyone after that event. Exactly. And then they start doing tests with every new person, testing them, believing they're going to betray them. And what's that do? That creates the self-fulfilling prophecy that eventually happens. And I don't know if you've met folks along that on, the, on your path that have had such a hard time trusting anyone that they become a person you can't trust. Yeah. And, and I think you, when I have my own moments now, when I'm offside from where I where I want to be, I have to pick myself back up and and go back to my Betty Crocker and and say, okay, I'm feeling down right now, and I don't I don't want this to consume me. So I'm actually going to make a very deliberate take very deliberate steps to go and talk to somebody and share and be vulnerable, and that can be as simple as just I have a fantastic wife and is go, you know, I'm bugged. I, can I have some time and just mm -hmm. hear me yeah. out, you know, go back what we were talking about before about churning that gift of that, that concept that, that you, you gave me as a gift is just the, the conversation itself is therapeutic and creates its own energy and momentum towards a, a more positive attitude. And so that's my own personal being in the moment's way of, of getting out of a funk. Just going and talking to somebody. I love that.
I love that. If there's something that for people to hear, it's maybe a problem shared is is a problem cut in half. I, it's an old saying from somebody. Yeah, I never heard that before. Yeah, Who's, who like, said that? Is that somebody with a complicated last name? <laughs> I have no clue. And it's possible. I actually made it up and think I just it would be better if I assigned it to someone other than me because then it would <laughs> yeah. have credibility. Like somebody, somebody really wise said Sorry, this. Confucius or somebody, especially. Yeah, it's one of those guys. Just, yeah, one of those dead guys. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, we're not. They're not going to be quoting us in a hundred years. That's that's for sure. <laughs> nah, this, you know, they might because this is recorded for all eternity. This this podcast. That's right. Where will, that's right. Five hundred years from now, there'll be some scientist unearthing this old ancient technology. Look at this. Hey, yeah. hey, Chuck, listen to this. Listen yeah. to these two guys. Yeah, you and me will be the Jackie Gleason and Art Carney of the, tw- <laughs> of, the of the third millennium. <laughs> Can you believe people laughed at that stuff? People thought these guys were really something. <laughs> at uh, least they, at least they did. <laughs> so let, so look here. Let's do this. I mean, if there was a great reason for someone to pick up the book the great chair what would your synthesis be what would you net it out and then i'll plug onto the back because i have something i want to say about it not just to shill it which it will be but i also had it meant shill away no it meant a lot to me when i read it but what's your distilled sort of value equation for people to pick it up and read it at times i regret calling it the great chair from the point of view that you know people say oh that's a pretty narrow market for your uh, book sales because you Mm. know it's for chairs like the great neurosurgeon or something (laughs) right what i was trying to get at in it in it it embodied in the subtitles is effective board leadership and that involves everybody at the board what i started off with right at the beginning is people think of boards and they, and the mindset immediately flips over to the big long glass table that you were just talking about and all of that sort of sterile, austere formality. When I do a PowerPoint version of it, I actually have pictures of school buses, pictures of hospitals, community things like the underwriter lab that makes sure that your, that your hairdryer doesn't electrocute you. These are all things that we depend on as humans to live our lives and raise our children. And so every organization to me, this is not a book for New York stock exchange traded companies and highfalutin private businesses and and et cetera. This is a book for your local school board. And I actually had a client in the last recent past where I bet you every community's had a situation where there's been some event that doesn't even make the national news where the board actually, somebody resigned, there was an impropriety, it's a school board, it's a hospital board, and that is your, could be your kids going to that school, could be your mother going to that hospital and something happened. And so why buy this or why, why engage and embrace it? Because it's got full of lessons, not just for the person that's at the pointy end of the big long glass table. It's for everybody that's in the room. 
because that person that's dealing with the chair, if you're not the chair, they actually can contribute to trust, trust building, being thoughtful, making sure that their behavior is not politically correct, but, you know, there's things, you know, Robert's rules is a way of, of creating tribes. You know, are you for the motion or against it? I learned, I tell the story in the book, which uh, mother walks in the kitchen, two daughters are arguing over one orange. She chops it in half, daughter one takes the, the orange, eats it, throws the peel in the garbage. Other daughter takes the peel off the orange, throws the orange in the garbage and uses the peel for making a cake to make some uh, zest and, and have the peel. And people need to actually think about it instead of saying, are you for or against the motion? Yeah. And, oh, I, I, I'm going to debate you. No, we're in this together. We're on this hospital board together. Let's think about how we can do a better job as a group of people that are intelligent and passionate about Oh, people that are on. So anyway, long story, Kevin, no, I, that's what this book's all about. And, and actually at the, you know, I finished it. And then my wife says, are you going to do something on COVID? So I have an epilogue there on COVID, but the, the paradigm there, because there's a guy that I just came across in, by happenstance, Dr. Virkel, who is passed away in 1905, but he invented the autopsy, but he was actually politically active. But the paradigm is that, the scientists, the Fauci's of the world can say, this is what's going on. This is what the facts are. And then the people, whether not to get into Republican, Democrat, whatever, that's on your side of the border. <laughs> but the people that actually implement, that are giving the vaccines, that are doing the logistics, they work for organizations that are governed by boards. All of our society, when at the end of the day, effectiveness and our ability to, to be a cohesive, caring, respectful society comes from the way that organizations engage, interact, which comes from governance and from boards being thoughtful, as opposed to being tribes of people debating some esoteric, are you for or against the motion? Why are we there? As as good a reason as any that I would suggest the book, The Great Chair by my friend, Brian Hayward, I would commend it to you because of the way in which it's written. Brian is an amazing storyteller and he has one of the greatest sense of humors. I'm sure when we did this podcast, as we listen back, we'll find some moments when we were laughing. And <laughs> from the time we met, we share an irreverence and disrespect for things getting way too serious. Where neither of us can remain serious for more than one to two minutes at a time without, without having to just poke fun at it. So the book, it's not sterile, it's human. And to Brian's point, it appeals to anybody anywhere who's sitting on any kind of a board. Nothing more than a collection of people meant to guide an organization to its mission and purpose, even to help it define what it might be. And so just enjoy it and you will laugh. He tells great stories and pokes great fun at himself along the way. So that's how I would commend the book to you. I'll, I'm going to tell everybody about where to get it. Tell me if I get this right. 
www.greatchair.ca, www.greatchair.ca. And if you uh, want, I will be signing it for you. And, and if you pop me an email, I'll even dedicate them. Perfect. Perfect. To my friend, Kevin. <laughs> so there you go. Well, uh, you're not done yet because now you have to answer my, my signature closing question. You are, I believe you were in your 60s. I think we said that somewhere. I don't know. Maybe it's still 50s. You look like you're 45, so I don't know how you're doing that. But uh, You need your glasses to fix yeah. there, my friend. I'm actually going to be 65 in okay. a week. <laughs> Got so. it. All right. In a week. So now turn around in your great chair and look down the path of your life and find your 23-year-old self. Mm-hmm. And if you could have given him advice from where you sit today, which he might have found useful at the age of 23, what would that advice be? What would you say? I love that question. My wife and I have actually periodically kind of venture into that. What would you tell your 23-year-old self, 33, 43? And, and, and the funny thing is when I've, when I've engaged in that exercise, I usually get the same answer, which is don't sweat it. Actually, just have some faith that things are going to be okay. People, when they're in their 20s, they're worried about their marks. Am I going to, you know, I'm graduating. What's my job going to be? Am I going to find a mate? Am, you know, am I, oh, yeah. and it's all this, this, this rolling ball of worry. I think the, the, the answer I, to your question is don't worry. Not don't worry, be happy, Bobby McFerrin. I don't sing that well. Otherwise, I do it for you. But, thank uh, you. Thank you. Don't <laughs> 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 no worry. Have a bit of a sense of humor is actually something I think is is I like having a sense of humor and I try to cultivate it and and I can be deliberate about it. You pick up the channel clicker and you can decide whether you're going to want to watch a tragedy or a comedy. Having a laugh and being in the moment to me is. It, it actually has professional applicability as well because people can be creative and have wonderful ideas when they got a smile on their face. Mm. Mm. So I, I, it's, it really is, you know, don't take life too seriously. We're all going to be on the wrong side of the grass eventually. Yep. So might as well enjoy the ride. Well done. Well, thank you, sir. This is a great time to close and thank another you episode. Once again. <laughs> You were exactly what I thought, an amazing guest, a great guest. I've been blessed. I have a ton of them. And so this is just one more to put in the marketplace for people to enjoy and consume and gather gifts. You left a, a lot of gifts on the table for everyone. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to this episode of Sheer Clarity. And you can find Sheer Clarity on all of the podcast platforms. Just put Sheer Clarity in the search field. And you can also find it at sheerclarity.com. So we will stop this episode, look forward to our next one. And until then, continue to remain a leader by attraction. Bye-bye for now.